morning. It's a joy and delight to be with you this morning as we celebrate the second, East, the second Sunday after Easter. And it's a joy and privilege indeed to bring the word of the Lord uh, to all of us. And of course, I thank the pastors for the privilege uh, to be able to do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and gracious Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. We, uh, of course, celebrated uh, Easter last Sunday, and we are still pretty much in the season of Easter, Easter tide, from Easter to the day of Pentecost. And so uh, we are going to have a sermon series just looking at the implications of the resurrection uh, for our lives. We're going to take selected uh, scripture passages from uh, the book of Acts, uh, some passages from the gospel and the letter of uh, 1 John. And today we want to just look in particular um, from the perspective of the church, that is the community of Christ. What does the resurrection mean for us as the community of Christ? Last month, I had the opportunity to uh, go to uh, Phnom Penh, Cambodia for a work assignment. Um, and in the course of my uh, work time there, I made friends with a young lecturer at the uh, technological institute where I was uh, conducting a seminar. And uh, we started to talk about um, uh, Cambodia, the, the, his hopes and dreams for economic development for that country. Uh, as you might know, they, among the Southeast Asian countries, they um, are still a little bit behind, but they, you know, there's quite a uh, you know, lot of uh, investments now, there's uh, good growth, and, and so that is that hope. And uh, I kind of mentioned to him that uh, you know, when I you know, came to Cambodia, Phnom Penh, I actually noticed um, you know, Starbucks was already around, and uh, this is the picture of uh, a Starbucks which, uh, outlet in the international airport which I took. Right? And I said, uh, yeah, but you know what, um, you know, Starbucks is already here, and Starbucks being one of the more maybe mid-range, a little bit upscale um, uh, franchise to establish. And he said, yeah, I mean, they only came the last year, and it's very difficult to get, obviously, international brands and franchises to come because they need a certain business standard. They need you know, to make sure that you, you have a certain standard. And so the arrival of Starbucks actually portends uh, good things uh, for, the, uh, for the economy because we said, yeah, you know, if Starbucks is here, you know, it's only a matter of time, right, before other, other brands and other franchises uh, come in. And so for the Cambodians, especially professionals like my lecturer friend, the presence of Starbucks is a tangible sign and reality of a future economic development. The, the part of their economic future has already arrived tangibly uh, in the present, even though, of course, there are still a lot of social economic uh, problems and challenges that lies ahead that, you know, the future is not completely here yet, but there is a tangible, visible uh, sign uh, of the promise of the future every time they see a Starbucks uh, in town. And the resurrection of Jesus is something like that for us. It is a tangible sign that God's future for us has arrived in the present. The Old Testament people of God um, went through um, a lot of suffering for their sins 
exile. And so if you look at you know, the world they were in, the only hope that they will have is the resurrection. God needed to literally raise them from the dead and remake the world. You can see some of that hope in Daniel chapter 12. There is the hope of the general, general resurrection that uh, people will be raised from the dead and to be judged before God. Vindication and salvation. Uh, we see that in uh, Martha, the, uh, the disciple of Jesus, at the death of his, uh, her brother Lazarus in uh, John chapter 11, when she met Jesus, Jesus asked, do you believe that uh, Lazarus will, raise, will be raised from the dead. And she said, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, right? She's referring to the generation, the general resurrection at the end of time. But with the resurrection of Jesus, what was supposed to happen at the end of time has now happened in the midst of our present time. God has raised Christ, the man Jesus, in the midst of our history, in the midst of our present time, as a hope and a pointer that God will also raise us from the dead. That the resurrection of Jesus is a tangible reality of God's future for us. And so, without the resurrection, there is no church. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The church constantly looks to Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, as the basis of His existence and hope. Why do Christians hold on to their faith in the face of suffering and death? because Jesus is risen from the dead and now reigns with God in heaven. Why do Christians keep on praying when many times our prayers don't seem to go answered? Because Jesus is risen from the dead and reigns with God in heaven. Why do Christians continue to believe in a better future, in God's future for them and for the world in the face of cancer, in the face of injustice, in the face of a fallen world where the wrong off seem to be so strong and the weak and innocent suffer needlessly. Why do, why do Christians keep on believing? Because Jesus is risen from the dead and now reigns with God in heaven. The resurrection is at the heart of the church. And for today, we want to look at the implication of the resurrection in this three key, uh, from these three key perspectives. A community being the redeemed of the Lord, consecration being set apart to be the living temple of the risen Lord, and commission being sent forth for the Lord. Uh, first stop, the community, the birth of the early church. Uh, if you look at the early chapters of Acts, uh, the, the early disciples of Christ were the ones, they were the eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. We read in Acts chapter 1 that after Jesus rose from the dead, he gave you know, very visible proofs uh, to his early disciples that he was indeed alive, risen from the dead. They were also eyewitnesses to the 
ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. As ascension meaning the exaltation of Christ into heaven at the right, at the right hand of God the Father. They were also, if you obviously know, uh, recipients of the promise of the Holy Spirit. There's Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church community. If you jump ahead to, uh, of course, there's a, a fellowship of uh, the believers, the growth of the early church, you find that at the end of Acts chapter 2, which mirrors our passage for today, Acts chapter 4. But in the early part of Acts chapter 4, the church encounters opposition from the religious leaders, and the church gathered together and prayed boldly. They, they, they didn't pray to be spared from persecution. They prayed, Lord, give us the power to boldly proclaim the Gospels with signs and wonders. And in response, there was this second great outpouring of the Spirit upon the church community. Some scholars say this is like something like the, sec the second Pentecost. Um, it is the ongoing outpouring of, of the Spirit to empower the church. And so this is just a little bit of the context. And then we come to our passage uh, for today in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And it reads, All believers were um, one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. So that, you know, that, you know, you can see very intense unity and a sense of connectiveness uh, to one another. In the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, you, you don't usually, of course, share, even in our own world, you don't share your possessions uh, with one another without some form of uh, uh, obligation or, or debt to one another, but uh, we, we see here that uh, they, they treated one another uh, literally as members of one family. And so uh, when they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ, it was not just an empty slogan. They actually acted on their belief and shared their possessions with one another. Reading on, we read, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. The early church was not simply living like a charitable organization, as though some of them thought, you know, it might be good to have this good works, moralistic society. They were living in response to the resurrection power that the apostles preached and that they themselves experienced as a community. They were living in response to the presence of God moving powerfully in their midst. They were also living like Jubilee people those whom God has redeemed and set free. The promise that is envisioned in the Old Testament when God formed the community of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4, this is what we read. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. You, you, of course, notice the similarity of the, the phrases, the key peak phrases between Deuteronomy 15 and uh, Acts chapter 4. God's grace was powerfully working in their midst and there were no needy persons among them. Deuteronomy chapter 15, that passage refers to the Sabbath year. This is every seven years. That at the seventh year, 
there's this debt forgiveness that you don't hold that against one another. There's a forgiveness of that. There's a freeing of slaves within uh, the nation and community of Israel. Seven cycles of the Sabbath year then leads to the great jubilee in the 50th year. You can read that up in Leviticus chapter 25. We don't know how strictly the nation of Israel kept to this Sabbath year and jubilee stipulations. Uh, we have no historical record to what extent these laws were kept in detail. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, during the reforms under the King Josiah, uh, we read that they found the book of the law when they were doing repairs of the temple, and the text tells us that um, you know, that law, the law of Moses, wasn't kept for many generations, for a few generations before them. So the implication is that you know, the, the, it's probably you know, the, the reality that these laws were not kept for a long time. But the implication of Acts chapter 4 is that now the people of God, filled with the power of the resurrection, began to live in response to God moving powerfully in their midst again. They were truly at last the jubilee people, the debt forgiveness people, the people in whom there's an intense spirit of unity, compassion, and the sharing of possessions with one another. This was the community that eventually overturned the order of the Roman Empire. Um, historians generally are interested in the question of why this Christian movement started in the provincial backwater of the empire eventually became the dominant faith of the empire. Now, in, in the ancient Roman world, there is no lack of idols and gods. There are no lacks of religious cults. Uh, for every occasion and need, you can think of good harvest, good health, good fertility, uh, protection, wars, and, and so on and so forth. And um, very often, the each town, each village, each city had its own uh, patron gods, right? So if you are inhabitant of this town, you, you need to pay homage to the patron gods over this town or city. And Christians were despised in the Roman, initially uh, in the Roman Empire because they refused to bow the knee to these pagan gods, to these um, patron gods of the city. Um, and they became convenient scapegoats whenever there's a disaster, there's a famine, there's an earthquake. Yeah, it's because these Christians, they refuse to bow the knee, they refuse to pay homage to the gods, it's their fault. In fact, the early Christians were regarded by the Roman world as atheists because they denied the power and the existence of these pagan gods. Right? They stubbornly insisted there's only one true and living God, and they were... They were <laughs> You know, they were atheists because they denied the presence and the power of other gods. But how, <clears throat> how did this despised group eventually became the dominant faith is one question that historians wonder, and this is a um, statement by a historian, Tom Holland. He says, today the question of how and why a crucified, I paraphrase, I've changed a little bit, uh, of how and why a crucified religious leader, you know, basically convicted as a, 
criminal in uh, Roman law, this crucified religious leader from an obscure corner of the Roman world, uh, Palestine, Israel, was a provincial backwater in the mighty Roman Empire, has decisively routed all his rivals for the title, the dominant faith of the empire, toppling gods from their ancient thrones and terminating their priesthoods, is one, the question, that continues to preoccupy historians. And so this uh, Bible scholar and historian, Larry uh, Luthardo, looked um, at the historical records to, uh, just on, based on historical evidence alone, what can we conclude? And uh, Holland summarizes the work of this book by saying, this is the, uh, in a, from the historical records, that the poor, this is the, the, the ethos of the Christian community, that the poor should be as worthy and respected as the rich, that the starving should have a claim on those with reserves to feed them, that the vulnerable, the children, prostitutes, slaves, should not be used by the powerful as mere sexual objects. This is the description, the historical record and evidence showing that this is the ethos of the Christian community that overturned the order of the Roman Empire. The description of the church community in Acts chapter 4 is not merely some idealistic and, but impractical religious faith. History shows that it was this community that transformed the whole Roman Empire and gave a new and living hope to countless masses of people throughout the Roman Empire. God can change an empire through his community of believers. And so, we come to this question, what are we here for as the church in this country in a time such as this? Uh, to state the obvious, there are many challenges, of course, that we face as a country. Many fair-minded people will look at the challenges that we face as a country and conclude it's better to find opportunities elsewhere. But what about the church in Malaysia? What do we say? Do we also conclude likewise that it's better to leave while you can and all the best if you can't? Now, of course, God does and can open doors for individual families, Christians to be mobile internationally. That's part of engaging an increasing uh, uh, globalized and connected world. And God has a say in that as well. But it seems to me the critical call of the church in Malaysia is to be God's redemptive community which identifies itself with the welfare, with the needs, and even the destiny of this nation. They are to be the jubilee people, the forgiveness people, the people on whom, in whom, and through whom the hope of God's glory and salvation will flow to this nation. The community who, in the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, will proclaim the good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, and declare the year of the Lord's favour for the land. If we as the church do not have hope or confidence in God's ultimate purposes for this nation, then where would the people of this country find hope? 
who will proclaim the good news to the poor and declare the year of the Lord's favour to this land. This is our vocation as God's people, for better or for worse, no matter what lies ahead politically or economically. Now, in our parliamentary uh, system, e elections are critical. Christians have an you know, important duty to pray over uh, this process and to participate in the voting. You know, that's without a doubt. But understand this. Huh? The early church transformed and overturn the Roman world upside down without having their favorite political party in power. They didn't have to win elections. They just need, as Acts chapter 4 tells us, to be of one heart and mind in living for the Lord, in being the resurrection people, a community where there is forgiveness, there's compassion, and a clear demonstration of God's power to save, to redeem, to heal, and to restore. Secondly, the community of the risen and resurrected Savior is also a consecrated community, the living temple of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, God's desire is to dwell in the midst of His people, the, the glory of His presence dwelling in the midst of the community of Israel. But the problem is, how do you do that? How does the, the holy, glorious presence of the Lord dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And so we see the, the laws concerning purity, the sacrifice of animals, these are to maintain that sacred space where the glory presence of the Lord is dwelling in the tabernacle and later in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And all other ceremonies is to maintain that sacred space because God's glory is dwelling in the midst of a sinful people and, and we need to be able to manage that. We need to maintain that relationship through the sacrifice of animals, purity laws, and so on. In the New Testament, Scripture tells us that Christians are now the living temple. We find this a lot in the letters of Paul to the Corinthian church that we as individuals and as a church, we are the living temple of God. That means as well that there must be a sense of awe and reverence for the holiness of God. 1 John chapter 1 says we have to come out of the darkness, we walk in the light. And whereas in the past there have been animal sacrifices, Christ is now the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and Christ is now the advocate, our advocate in the presence of God the Father, so that that, that relationship with God is maintained. So in terms of implications for our worship and our sense of allegiance, we as a community, we are hosting the presence of the Lord. Paul's letter in the, uh, to the Second Corinthians reads, we are the temple of the living God. No, it is no longer confined within a physical building. The living presence of God is now dwelling in the midst of His people, in our hearts, in our midst. And Paul goes on to say of God, quoting the Old Testament 
I will live among them. I will walk in their midst. I will be their God and they will be my people. This has come true for us as the community of believers in Christ. And the Old Testament hope is that when God does restore and come back to His people, that the surrounding nations will experience and hope for the presence of the Lord. In, in Zechariah uh, chapter 8, we find that uh, the word of the Lord says that ten foreigners will grab hold of one Israelite and say that, bring us to the temple. The, we, we heard that the, the Lord is with you. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 45, foreigners will come to the people of the Lord, surely God is in your midst. Think about that as an implication to how we do worship. That as we gather to worship, it is the presence of the Lord that transforms lives. Not the church building in particular, although we need, obviously, to maintain and give good facilities. Not in any style or techniques or marketing tools to attract people. It is the presence of the Lord that makes a difference in the lives of people. And so are we leading the world to God or are we selling ourselves to the world? When we buy in to the world's values, when we subscribe to the indicators of success according to the world, money, popularity, celebrity status, we sell ourselves and we sell the gospel short to the powers that be in this world. If I say that, yeah, I think I need to drive a Porsche, I need the status symbols of the rich to be able to preach to the rich, am I not selling myself short and the gospel short to the powers that be to the world? Did Jesus need the symbols and trappings of wealth and power to preach to the rich? Did Paul? Did the early apostles? The use of power. We are the community in whom God's power moves powerfully. But if we use power or understand the use and the application of power as the world does, coercion, slander, backstabbing, then we are truly sell ourselves short. Unless we are gospel-centered in how we worship and how we come as a community of Christ, the cross of Christ will be emptied of its power, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But when you host the living presence of God, you need to deal with sin. You need to come out of the darkness and walk in the light. And for the John, in 1 John chapter 1 and 2, we, from the scripture passage that was read, we need to have that spirit of repentance and confession before the Lord. And God is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cannot afford to take sin lightly. Uh, I remember 
uh, one Christian leader many years ago, he came to our church, he was conducting seminars here, and he, he actually told me directly that we shouldn't preach about sin. Never mention sin when you want to preach. Never mention, just say that you're forgiven. How dare you mention sin? If you mention sin, you will drive them away. Just mention you're forgiven. Uh, Bishop Emeritus Hua Yong, he was also here many years ago conducting uh, our revival services and he talked about discipleship and he was relating an incident about a man um, he's trying to counsel him. He was in an adulterous relationship going out with another woman and um, our bishop was trying to say, you know, this is sin in God's eyes. But that man insisted, no, I'm covered by the grace of God. I'm covered by the grace. I will not be condemned and went ahead with that relationship anyways. If we fail to deal with sin as the community, as the consecrated community of Christ, then we are no longer functioning as the living temple of God. But, but, when we do come with a spirit of confession and repentance, God has made every provision for us to come to Himself, to come near to His glorious presence, to inhabit His glorious presence. He has promised forgiveness of sin. He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. But if that were not enough, Jesus, the risen Savior, is now our advocate before the presence of God the Father. He's presenting, He's pleading our case for our welfare and needs before the throne of the Father. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8. Christ who died, but more than that, who was raised from the dead, and is at the right hand of Father and is also interceding for you, praying for you. And so, if any one of us are struggling with sin or wrestling with a problem too painful to bear, don't you give up. Don't you give up. Jesus is your advocate. He's interceding for you before the throne of God the Father. And so we can be secure in our relationship with God. Just a side note, if we realize that Christ is interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ in the, in the community, then we have to have a care in how we treat one another, right? I mean, if we maliciously slander, condemn one another, are we then not acting against, in opposition to the prayers and the intercession of Christ. We have to let our prayers, our intercession and actions align with how Christ is interceding for the needs of His people as well. How has God set us apart to host His presence? Think of what difference it makes, it should make to how we worship as a church how we do ministry as a church. Lastly, the risen Lord sends out His people into the world. Uh, John chapter 20, this is after Jesus was raised from the dead and uh, met with the disciples. And this is just, I, 
I'm just drawing out these two verses. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the sending goes with the receiving, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what the theologian Karl Barth uh, says about apostle. The word apostle in Greek means to one that is sent, right? So an apostle is a person with a mission and the power to carry it out. He is sent to enemy-occupied territory to break up a blockade. So, how would we characterize the mission of Jesus in terms of operating in enemy-occupied territory? Uh, Jesus himself said this in Mark chapter 3, explaining to the religious authorities about him driving out demons from people, right? In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, binding him, binding the strong man. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus is describing his ministry of deliverance. He is the stronger one who binds up the strong man. Jesus sent by the Father into occupied territory to disrupt, disarm, and destroy. He disrupted the forces of sin and bondage on the people by healing and driving demons from the people. He disarmed the powers and authorities, earthly and demonic of this world, by the power of the cross, Colossians 2.15. And he destroyed the powers of sin and death by his resurrection. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And so, if we believe the words of Jesus, as the Father sent me, I am now sending you, then at least we should understand the context of what we are entrusted to do under his authority and power. Problem. Economists uh, have a term called middle income trap. Some of you would probably know. This is when the country stagnates, right? I mean, it has grown, but it's because you know, of the current structure, the invested efforts, it, 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 it doesn't invest anymore into higher-end technologies. Neither, the, neither is the people willing to do lower-end stuff, so you're trapped and you, you stagnate. This is true of organizations as well. Uh, you have initial success with your products and services, uh, but these are, you, know, you have your comfortable comfort zone, but you're not investing and not risking it anymore for new technologies, new products, and you stagnate, go down. It's our church in the middle-income trap. Have we too much vested interest in our lifestyle, in our comfort zones, to risk serving the Lord wholeheartedly? Instead of disrupting, disarming, and destroying, we have a false sense of control, convenience, and comfort. We cling on to our need for control. Huh? Uh, we want control over our agenda, our ambitions. See, because it's too, much, it's too scary to allow the Lord to dictate our lives. So what do we do? We, we plan programs, and then we define the boundaries of what is possible and feasible. So we cling on to that illusion of control rather than being driven by the Holy Spirit. Of course, you need programs, you need planning, you, you know, budgets are necessary, but who is really in control? Have we invested too much 
in our comfort zones to be God's disruptive agent for change. Jesus calls his disciples, take up your cross, follow me. The cross means the death of our self-control, the control over our lives, our comfort, our convenience. There's nothing comfortable or convenient about being crucified with Christ. But when we do go out to serve, avoid the false extremes of pride, despair, or complacency. Pride meaning, wow, you know, when things go well, you know, things happen. Wow, God is fortunate to have talented people like us on his team. I mean, you know, we, we are the ones, right? And then we revolve our programs about talent management and we use, again, success indicators from the world and impose them into how we do ministry. Yes, God has a talented team, and that leads us to a lot of error. Despair, meaning, oh, it's all up to us. You know, the, the problems are just too hard. It's impossible, so, you know, why try? Complacency, God is in control. Why should we do anything, right? But this is what Paul says, To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The, though, you know, when we fall into an era of pride, we only see the, strain, the strenuous energy that we put in. So, yeah, God is, you know, fortunate to have us on his team. We don't realize it's all about God's power working in us. When we are complacent, we say, oh, Christ is so powerful, why does he need me? Paul says all of this needs to come together, and we need to be God's agent for disruptive transformation of the nation. You might ask me, wow, disruptive transformation change. These are big words. What does it look like in real life? i tell you what it looks like. It looks like someone like Mary Wolf starting a support group for the Alzheimer's patients and their caregivers. It looks like someone like George, someone like Elaine, going week after week to help poor students. It looks like many of us here without any funfare, praying for the sick, visiting those in need. This is how we start. And so I just want to leave you with this. Where has God placed us? Where do we spend most of our time? Where most of our relationships are? What is the context where we do our most meaningful or creative work? That is a starting point. That are indicators to point you to the mission field that God is sending you out to. It could be, some of us, it could be work in our workplace. Some of us, it could be the context of the community or the neighborhoods. But we need to identify this. And we, not, we need to start praying boldly. Not just praying according to what is humanly possible. Praying according to what only God can do so that his power will be at work to disarm the spiritual forces of darkness that hold people in sin and bondage. I've got to end, right? It's communion, right? So let me just try to round up uh, the resurrection. Resurrection is at the heart of our church, at, of, the, of the church. We are to be the resurrection community, the redeemed of the Lord, 
who works powerfully in response to the resurrection power of Christ. Consecrated, set apart to be God's living temple. Commissioned, being sent forth to the world to be God's destructive agent for change for the sake of God's kingdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.